Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. We start today's show with a look at what the results of Mexico's recent presidential election may mean for NAFTA and North American trade. And later on, Tyler Orton's going to talk to someone from Avison Young about how landlords can properly vet retail cannabis tenants. BIV is once again looking to recognize BC's outstanding entrepreneurs, executives, managers, and professionals in public, private, and nonprofit sectors who are ahead of their time. Nominations for the 2018 40 Under 40 Awards close July 30th. Visit BIV.com slash events for details. Mexico's election of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO, as he's commonly known. Kind of like J-Lo. Kind of like J-Lo, yeah. yeah I like Emma, it. It's Emma. like a rock star. That's going to be so name. easy to remember. Yeah. Exactly. Well, he's elected as president on Sunday in an election that upset really decades of national politics. He, he was the leftist candidate. His party won a majority in both national houses. And his presidential victory comes after more than 80 years of rule by center-right parties. Now, there is a five-month transition of power, though members of AMLO's team will be in the room, so to speak, for ongoing NAFTA discussions. And of course, if NAFTA isn't finalized this year, it is a file that the president-elect will inherit. So this warrants a look at what his policies may mean for ongoing negotiations and what it means really for Canada's relationship with Mexico. Joining us for this discussion is Carlo Dade, a regular guest on BIV Today. He's the director of the Canada West Foundation's Trade and Investment Centre. He's also a member of COMEXI, the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, and a leading commentator on Canada-Mexico relations. Carlo, thanks so much for joining us. Hey guys, always great to be in Vancouver, if uh, spirit not in person. <laughs> Carlo, it's already been written that uh, he is not Hugo Chavez, and he's not Donald Trump. He's somewhere well in between. Where would you station him on the political spectrum, and what do you think he he stands for? So, you know, it, it's interesting. I'm glad you guys are starting out uh, correcting the dominant narrative that um, you know, we're still, unfortunately, seeing a lot of up here, leftist, populist, and in the Latin American context. When you add Latin America to that, Canadians' minds start to go in directions that are unhelpful uh, when thinking about the changes in Mexico. Now, this was actually a post-ideology or a post-political election. The political parties were all over the place with alliances and, uh, you know, changing, changing what they were doing in this election. So, you know, the leftist term in this election or populist in this, in this election, in this Mexican context, really doesn't apply. So where would I put them? You know, I would put them someplace along the lines of a, Born again Christian Richard Daly of Chicago. Yikes. How's that? Whoa. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Well, you know, he's, he's, well, I, I don't think Richard Daly ever thought like about. <laughs> did Richard Daly ever think of being born again? I'm not sure he was born. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. But you, but you take that element and not in the swarmy televangical, I'm only right. doing this for TV, but the sincere people we all know um, who really do live, uh, live, live their faith. And you mix that with a a career machine politician. And you get, I think, the interesting con- uh, conflict at Islamo. But the key point here is he's a politician. Yeah. He is someone that has run the second largest state in Mexico. He's made bad decisions and woken up the next morning, the next week, the next year, and had to deal with those 
decisions. And he, he, he is first and foremost someone who understands the machineries of power uh, and politics. And if you look at Mexico, you've been to Mexico City, you've seen that he's also someone that knows how to get bleep done. You look around at the gentrification of downtown, the elevated auto highways. So first and foremost, I would say he is a pragmatist. At the end of the day, he understands political power. He understands how to work with unions, how to work with stakeholders, and he knows how to get stuff done. So for us, I think that's the bottom line. So can we take that pragmatism and apply it to, say, getting things done when it comes to NAFTA or trade deals with Mexico's partners? Absolutely. I think this is the other bit, and this is why the old leftist populist um, idea or name tag really doesn't apply in, in this context, in this Mexico. You know, there was a great interview with his um, incoming NAFTA negotiator, uh, Jesus Edes, and uh, a lengthy interview in which he was asked questions along the lines of, you know, what about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, something we've talked about a lot. Um, now, you would expect with the leftist populist that they would say to a major multilateral trade deal, uh, they would say, oh, no, we've got to look at it. We've got to reexamine it. Um, we're not sure about it. Instead, what do you hear from AMLO's people? Oh, of course we're going to ratify it. Of course we're going to ratify it expeditiously. We need to increase exports. We need liberal trade. Um, so this, uh, again, and if you look at Canada on this, our prime minister is the one who's been saying, well, I don't know, we've got to take our time, we've got to look at it slowly. So I think Canadians should look at this and say, in AMLO, you have someone in the rhetoric coming into office um, who is more for liberalized trade than even our own prime minister, Justin Trudeau. Yeah, that's so interesting that you say that, and and yet we also the conventional wisdom is that Mexico has the bullseye on its back here in the NAFTA discussions, that it's the target of America's uh, antagonism, particularly Donald Trump's, in terms of job losses and, and so on. Is there any possibility here that there is a, a false sense of complacency? Well, no, I think it's a sense of reality. And again, it gets back to pragmatism. AMLO is of the Mexican political class who is fully cognizant and versed in their integration with the United States. You know, to suddenly walk away or to damage that uh, would result in losses. Again, if you're a populist and you're worried about people having jobs, the millions who work in the maquilladores in the north or the millions who depend upon commerce with the U.S., you know, your goal is to protect that and to see that it continues and to mitigate any downsides or damages uh, from that relationship. So AMLO, if you look at, again, his incoming NAFTA negotiator and others who are advising him, they are very clear. You know, the relationship with the U.S. is important, and they will do what's necessary to um, protect that relationship. Necessary, short of, you know, appeasement. Appeasement to the U.S. is not an option. It is engage, move things forward, do not provoke, but do not appease. If that sounds familiar, it's the line that Christia Friedland used a few weeks ago when talking about Canadian engagement. So even though Mexico's had its bullseye on its back, they've learned and they've adapted. This is something that we in Canada, I would argue, have picked up from the Mexicans, and we are adopting a similar line following their experience. AMLO 
is taking what uh, has been learned to this point, and he's indicated that he's going to continue with those policies. With NAFTA, he said no surprises, no changes. We're going to take over from the previous administration and continue. Does it follow then that Canada and Mexico throughout these negotiations will continue to be aligned in the sense that neither one's going to throw the other under the bus and they're going to together counter some of the demands that the U.S. puts forward? I expect that, uh, given what we've seen from the AMLO administration and the comments made again by Jesus Cedes, uh, you know, he says he hasn't met the Canadian negotiating team, but he's worked with Canadians in the past. He's always enjoyed working with Canadians. I think he even joked that he has a better time. He has more fun with the Canadians than he does with the Americans. So given that sort of openness on a personal level and given the statement that they intend to continue the framework for negotiations and the practices of the previous Mexican government, yes, I would expect continued cooperation where it makes sense. Now, there's some things where (laughs) we just, you know, the Mexicans go to the bathroom when we start talking about supply management and we head out to the camp when the Mexicans start talking about seasonal agricultural produce. So there are certain differences and I don't expect those differences to change, but nor do I expect the areas of cooperation uh, to change. Um, And I would also say that we're actually probably in a better position with this Mexican government. I'm the one in the landslide. And I mean a landslide in any country under any circumstances. He took something like 30 or 31 of 32 Mexican states. He had over 60% of the vote, I think, in the majority of Mexican states. So we now have a partner at the NAFTA negotiating table that not only will continue with what the previous government was doing, but we can now have greater confidence that because of the electoral mandate that this government has, that they'll be able to deliver on things that they agree to at the negotiating table. So we shouldn't have to worry about whether or not Mexico can live up to its end of the the bargain in NAFTA. We have a government that has the capability to deliver, and that should increase our confidence in working with Mexico and take a worry off the table for us in these negotiations. Haley mentioned at the top of our discussion, uh, Carlo, that there is a five-month transition of power, which, boy, by our standards, seems <laughs> compl- a long time. an eternity. Um, but that being said, because AMLO did get the electoral result he got in the sense of that he has a very, very strong mandate, does that really render the Peña Nieto group uh, kind of uh, absolutely redundant at the table here in the next number of months? Well, it could, except that, again, the AMLO team has indicated that they want to join the the, the Peña Nieto team, so Ken Smith-Ramos and and his group, the current Mexican negotiator, they want to join them at the table. And again, the table right now is empty because the Americans aren't showing up. But should the negotiations restart after the midterms, uh, they would want to have one or two of their people working with the Peña Nieto team. So this would be a transition. So yes, it could be redundant, except that they want to take advantage of the current team, work with them in transition. Again, I cannot imagine a better outcome for Canada in this Mexican election than what we have on the table. In our last conversation with you, Carlo, you mentioned we could possibly be looking to 2020 to see a solution on NAFTA. Does this election result change your mind at all? Are we any closer to reaching a deal sooner? No, the the holdup are are the Americans. Uh, 
And again, until the Americans resolve their issues, we in Mexico have to be patient. We have to remain engaged and we have to avoid getting dragged into Twitter, Twitter, Twitter fights that, um, that help no one but the U.S. president um, and that damage the relationship. So, no, I still think we're probably looking at um, 2020. Uh, The Mexicans will continue their positions. They will join us in rejecting the Sunset Clause. And um, there may be new demands from the Mexican side on agriculture, uh, which has been a quiet issue that's mostly been, uh, I think, uh, resolved at the negotiating table. But uh, that's the only holdup or the only crank I could see coming into this new Mexican demands on agriculture. It wasn't so long ago that we were expecting that we were going to get NAFTA negotiations <laughs> done by the Mexican elections, then certainly by the American mm-hmm. midterm elections. Now you're even saying maybe not even by the Canadian election. All three deadlines passed. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, I, that, yeah, so for a while I've been thinking 2020. Um, again, looking at the U.S. midterms, um, the ability of Congress to start pushing back and demanding more out of the administration – and again, I think that Donald Trump benefits from uncertainty. Uh, there are several theories as to what tr- Trump's foreign policy doctrine is. And one of the leading contenders is that continued global instability benefits the United States. And if you apply that to NAFTA, the uncertainty around NAFTA um, driving business investment decisions to force investment or direct investment towards the United States benefits Donald Trump, the ability to tell the unions and the Rust Belt that he's continuing to fight for an agreement um, benefits Donald Trump, the ability to tell the agricultural sector that he hasn't abandoned NAFTA and they can't get mad at him for killing off U.S. agriculture's two biggest markets benefits him. So the current situation, I think, benefits him uh, for as long as he can get away with it. And the question is, how much longer can you get away with it? How much longer will the U.S. Senate um, continue to put up with the abuse of the trade authority that the Congress and Senate have ceded to Donald Trump? We're already starting to see a revolt in the U.S. Uh, Senator Corker has been joined by Senator Hatch from Utah. Um, so the list of senators that are getting close to the point of open revolt against Trump and to the point of taking back authority from the U.S. president on trade, which I think last happened in 1975. Uh, The Senate took 232 authority back from President Ford, I think it was. Um, But we could be seeing that again as a revolt in the Senate and the U.S. heats up. He's leaving quite a mess for President Romney. (laughs) (laughs) That, um, unfortunately, I, I... Think that's not going to be the case. I okay. see the U.S. actually getting getting worse. You get to make a joke um, once in a while on this podcast, don't yeah. worry. Yeah, <laughs> once. Yeah, because <laughs> if not, you're going to have people opening up the window looking to jump. <laughs> but no, I, I I really do see the U.S. getting uh, the political situation in the U.S. getting worse in the near term. You're looking at replacing senators like Jeff Flake, who is an ardent proponent of NAFTA an ardent proponent of liberalized trade, a proponent for reining in the president's authority on trade, you're looking at having him replaced with someone like Kelly Angle, who is just a Trump acolyte and whatever Trump says, yes, sir, yes, sir. So you're looking at a drastic 
potential change in the Senate where the voices of reason and opposition of traditional liberalized trade and the importance of North America are replaced by voices that um, are, are, are simply pro-Trump. And I think it's a Senate where we have the greatest danger. And if that change does occur, it's not just getting a few more Trumpites in, it's replacing people who are trying to constrain Trump with people who are just completely pro-Trump. And if that happens, we're in for a, a much rougher time. Carlo, as always, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. That's Sorry Carlo. for the bad news. <laughs> That's okay. I'll have to keep having you back to walk us through what comes next. That's Carlo Day, director of the Canada West Foundation's Trade and Investment Center. Coming up next, how landlords can vet prospective retail cannabis tenants. Now, there's a range of innovative disruptive technology that's emerged to provide financial services and systems that conduct transactions and aim for greater efficiency. Join us September 13th for BIV's FinTech panel, where we're going to discuss helping small and medium-sized businesses make informed decisions in this new landscape. For more information, go to BIV.com slash events. With legal recreational cannabis set to launch in October, commercial property landlords are facing dilemmas about how to deal with clients in this nascent industry. BC, we're going to have a mix of private and public retailers, but landlords have very little guidance on how to properly vet for businesses that may or may not be credible. Commercial real estate firm Avis & Young, they've been developing a framework to help out with this process. And joining us today is Susan Thompson. She's a research manager at Avis & Young's Calgary office. Susan, thanks for joining us on the show. Hello. Yes, thank you. So you guys have developed this framework, this uh, request for qualifications framework. But uh, before we get into, I guess, the, the nitty gritty, the minutia of that, I, I want to ask you a little bit, you know, when you guys went and approached this, obviously you need to talk to some landlords and I'm wondering what kind of response you were getting for them. What kind of concerns were being expressed in, in a general sense here? The conversation around uh, this request for qualification uh, framework that we developed started about six months ago, really from an education perspective. Landlords didn't understand what they were dealing with. This was something that had previously been illegal. Nobody knew how to handle it. Nobody knew what the stores are going to look like. Nobody knows anything about the potential tenants. So it was really, how do they get over that initial anxiety of, this becoming a legal product and it becoming part of the regular retail mix. And you guys have approached that because I, I think it's an obvious concern for a lot of people. And there, there's a number of factors that you guys are highlighting here about how you can actually go about vetting people properly. And why don't we take it uh, maybe step by step? We, we might not get through all of the categories here, but let's start off with this. You know, when it comes to vetting people, what do you think is going to be one of the important factors here? So really it comes down to three key areas of the business plan when you're looking at these, what essentially are startups. And it's around human resources, um, the operations plan, and financial areas. And tell me a little bit, because with regards to being able to vet this, uh, l let's take it from like, say, a, a layman's perspective like mine. A am I actually submitting, say, financial plans as a business owner to a potential landlord here? Uh, how does a landlord actually kind of attain this? How do they kind of quiz people on these sorts of things? 
Yes. So as I said, these landlords are looking at what are basically startup companies. So they need to understand where is the money coming from? How are you planning to manage um, you know, capital costs to get started and, and operating costs and inventory costs going forward? And how do you are you planning your financing and arrangements for the future so that we know this is not, you know, could be anything from, because this industry has previously been run by organized crime or the black market. We don't know. We, we're trying to prevent those types of people from straight up entering the current uh, business operations. So we want to make sure these businesses are legitimate and they have, plans that are laid out. And are there kind of deep concerns that, look, there's a lot of opportunities here with this uh, rolling out in the next few months, but are there a lot of concerns that people may be jumping on board, say landlords, too prematurely, they don't want to be left out, and they're not doing, I guess, the proper due diligence on these people, and and they need to find a way to determine whether or not they are credible? That's absolutely correct. There's a lot of now that the legislation's in place, people can and businesses can see what's needed for this. And it's been approached very thoughtfully by the government at, at all levels of trying to keep things safe and, and how do we manage that. So it really came down to there were three core objectives. Dismantle the illicit market, restrict youth access, and ensure public health and safety. So that's really what drove all the legislation. So when you're looking at a business plan for one of these companies, you want to make sure they're mindful of those things. And then you also have to weigh them any way you would any other tenant of, are they, you know, ticking the boxes that you need as a landlord to be satisfied with that business as part of your mix. And speaking of that box ticking, there's a couple interesting categories that I, I wanted to jump on here because you guys are also making sure that people are asking the right questions here. Tell me a little bit about what kind of questions people should be asking when it comes to looking at, say, the leadership team and maybe that leadership team's own hiring process. Right. So obviously anyone involved in, in sales of cannabis are going to have to go through a background check, and that is actually legislated at the the provincial level, they state, you know, anyone who's doing this is going to have to go through background checks. Similar with liquor, similar with some of the other industries that we see, there has to be that background check so that we can ensure these are, you know, we're we're staying away from people that really shouldn't be in, in the mix. So the leadership team, who are the members? Give me a bio. What's the corporate government? What are the processes uh, that the company is going to be administered and directed by? What retail experience do these people have? It doesn't have to be cannabis. They don't have to be coming from, you know, there's a few places in the States where they do have legal um, cannabis sales. There's other industries that transfer over. We've already talked about liquor, but there's things like pharmaceuticals, tobacco, high-end jewelry. The, The skills and the methodology transfer over and then talk to me about industry knowledge you know I have spent a lot of time reading this legislation and trying to understand what this is going to look like when it rolls out have they done something similar do they 
do they seem to be in line with all of that policy that's been put in place? One of the other things that you guys are highlighting here, though, and you kind of touched on this earlier on, though, it's just kind of landlords are going to have security concerns. And you guys are bringing up the fact that, you know, people should be looking into security as well as product tracking. Why is this of utmost importance if somebody is vetting a potential client here? Obviously, we're dealing with a a substance that has um, the ability to impair people. So we'd want to make sure that that's being tracked, same as liquor or pharmaceuticals. You don't want that getting into the wrong hands and getting to youth or vulnerable individuals or entering the black market again. So security and inventory management are going to be critical when this industry comes in. So how are deliveries being handled? What is your inventory and monitoring and tracking system? How is product being stored on site? How much product is being stored on site? And and really, and at the government level, they're actually even putting in things like Health Canada has got a seed, has said we need seed to sale tracking. So what processes are you putting in place to um, comply with those requirements? And if I want to make this kind of a, a local angle here, here in Vancouver, and I'll be asking kind of the general questions because I'm not expecting you to be following all from your Calgary office to be following all the nitty gritty of what's going on in Vancouver. But you may have heard that, you know, the, the city is really dealing with issues about illegal dispensaries. And I, I wonder how much of this was a result of maybe just improper vetting versus landlords being okay with these kinds of storefronts. And from your perspective, if you have a city that's just lined down very many streets with a lot of these legal dispensaries, is that a result of landlords not asking the right questions of people, or is that a result of landlords simply being okay with who's coming in? That's a tough question to answer because I don't know how the decisions were ultimately made. Obviously, there were no municipal bylaws in place that covered the product because the product wasn't legal other than medicinal, and medicinal had its own system. So these ones that fell into the gray zone, I, I, I couldn't tell you what the process was they went through. And I, I would have to guess that some landlords decided they were okay with this. And some landlords, I don't know what their vetting process is. I would think some larger landlords obviously would have some. A smaller landlord may not. And we were hoping to provide a really solid framework here that everyone can use. And with that in mind, I mean, are one of the risks, if they are not doing proper vetting here, is that maybe they could alienate some of their present tenants that are neighboring into these storefronts as well. And that's critical in the process of vetting one of these. You, you, As a landlord, you have to ask, does this mix with my current tenants? And is this um, the right thing to have in my shopping center? You know, so, if you're catered to a particular type of market, does this fit? So I've got one last question for you, and I'll, I'll let you go, Susan. But when we see everything that's coming out ahead of October, I, I mean, you guys have been developing this request for qualifications framework, but are you still anticipating that there's going to be a lot of challenges ahead for you know the commercial real estate industry as they hem and haw over what to do with accepting a lot of these retailers into their properties? 
there's a lot of question marks still remaining out there on this industry. Nobody knows truly what the demand's going to be once, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of curiosity at the beginning, but where is it going to settle out at? And nobody knows what the customers are going to prefer. Are they going to prefer a low-cost provider? Are they going to prefer more of a pharma, a pharmacy-type approach? Are they going to approve, prefer a really high-end experiential, think um, Apple Store? Do they want something like that? We don't know what it's going to look like. And the industry itself is going to evolve. When it rolls out day one, the product mix is going to be quite small. But over time, that product mix is going to mature and expand. And so we don't know how that's going to affect um, the store mix and what operators are doing. Well, uh, Susan, let's say uh, we, we follow up on this in about six, seven months as we're just seeing the beginnings of this rollout, because I'm very fascinated with how this is going to affect a lot of these commercial real estate uh, landlords here. But for now, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Absolutely. This was fantastic. Thank you. That's Susan Thompson. She's a research manager at Avis & Young's Calgary office. 